Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 18. One of the things the Bible says about Abraham, and that's who we're talking about uh, over these last several weeks, is this guy named Abraham in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the things the Bible points out about Abraham is that he is called a friend of God. We've talked a lot about Abraham's faith over the last few weeks. The, the New Testament, when it talks about Abraham, that's what it points out to us about him, was that this is a man who believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. He's kind of the father of faith, in a sense. And so you're reading Genesis, you're at the beginning of the Bible, and then all of a sudden you get to chapter 12, and there's this guy that God, by his grace, calls out, and he believes God, and God gives him this incredible promise that there was going to be this people that were going to come into the world through his lineage. This guy had no kids, right? And that there would be this one particular offspring, he tells us, we talked about that a little bit last week, that would come. And through him, he says, all the nations will be blessed. And we know that's ultimately Israel is the nation. Jesus comes from Israel, right? And so Jesus, the Messiah, has come into the world, and that was uh, the promise given to Abraham. And now because of Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus today, you're in a sense a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And so a lot for us to learn from Abraham. And so as we look at his journey of faith, one of the things we learn, and the Bible points out, is that he was called a friend of God. And we have an incredible picture of his friendship with God in Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. Second Chronicles 27 says this about Abraham. Did you not know our God, did, did, did you not our God drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So 2 Chronicles just kind of passingly mentions Abraham as God's friend. Isaiah 41.8 refers to Abraham as God's friend. And James 2.23 points out that Abraham was God's friend. Uh, it's an interesting phrase to think of the God of the universe who created everything, who's all-powerful, that there's one particular person that his word wants us to point out that he had friendship with God, that Abraham had friendship with God, and that God was, had friendship with Abraham. And we get this picture sort of what that friendship was like here now if you're a believer in christ this morning you're god's friend you understand that this morning that if you've placed your faith and trust in jesus that you are god's friend apart from christ the bible is very clear that we are all enemies of god because of our sin we're separated from god at enmity with him and that through Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, when we believe in him, we go from being friends of God, excuse me, enemies of God, to being friends of God, children of God even, sons and daughters of God, the Bible teaches, when we trust Jesus. Now, here's the thing about friends and family members. They talk, or they should. The idea is that Abraham was in close relationship with the God of the universe. And if you know Jesus personally, you are in close relationship with the God of the universe. It means you can approach God, you can talk to God, you can be heard by God, not on your grounds, but on grounds of Christ, your mediator, in His name, not your name. And based on His reputation, based on what He's done, He's made it possible for you and I to be children of God and friends of God, and that means we can talk to God and be heard by God and have relationship with God. This morning, we're going to learn from this encounter that Abraham has with God, this particular encounter, that friendship with God means that we should allow our identity as God's people and what we know about God and all that is at stake in our world to pull us toward prayer. That friendship with God means that we should be talking to God. 
It means we should be, in a sense, wrestling with God, as we see in one passage in the Old Testament. That we should, that we should be coming before God, pleading with God on behalf of others many times, just as Abraham did, because that's what it means to be a friend, with, friend of God. And it's all rooted in knowing who we are, knowing who God is, knowing what's at stake. So that's what we're going to see this morning. As we pick up in our reading in Genesis 18, we left off here last week, we saw that three of the men, three men showed up to talk to Abraham to give him some news. Now, one of the men turns out to be God, turns out to be the Lord. And many believe a pre-incarnate Christ. And so these three men, one being the Lord, shows up to talk to Abraham, and they've got good news and they've got bad news. And in the right fashion, right, they give the good news first. What do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Ah, give me the good news first, right? The good news is you're going to have a baby, right? And they laugh, right? And that's what we talked about last week. The bad news is there's this city not far from here, a couple of cities that we're about to go check out, and the insinuation is if things are going as we think they're going, we're about to wipe these cities off the face of the map. And so that's what we journey into in chapter 18, picking up in verse 16. The three men are there, and they're getting ready to leave after telling them that Sarah, Abraham's 90-year-old wife, that she would have a baby a year later when they return. Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The point is here, Abraham has a unique relationship with God. Okay, you catching that? By grace, he has a unique relationship with God. He is God's friend, and he's being treated like a friend here. Am I going to share this with Abraham? Verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I'll know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. All capital letters there, Yahweh. I love that line. We could all learn from that line right there. We could stop and preach on that line. I'm not going to. About just the idea that in this moment, Abraham notices something. Something captures him and he stands there before everybody else is leaving. He stands there before the Lord. Verse 23, then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place not, and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, it sounds here, let's pause, it sounds like Abraham is trying to haggle with God, right? He's kind of like, there's a haggling going on here. But notice, he's pleading with God according to God's character. And notice God's mercy. If I find 50, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose 50... So suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? 
And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, this passage is a very clear picture of a man interceding for a city. Through it, we learn a lot about prayer, and we can learn a lot about God. And in some ways, the main things the Bible might want us to learn here might be something about God. But there's something to be learned about prayer here and about our identity and about God's identity and who God is and how that comes together in prayer and how that should move us to prayer as God's people. Now, notice these cities at stake here are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're infamous. They're infamous. These cities are well known for being destroyed by God because of their wicked deeds. They were rampant with sexual immorality. That's what they're famous for. That's all anybody, when people talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, all they think about is the sexual immorality, the, the homosexual acts and all that sort of stuff. And that was rampant there. That was definitely a deal there. But that was not the only sin in those cities and not the only reason for which God destroyed those cities. So we need to understand that this morning. This text shows is that there's also social, we're going to get to this in a minute, but there's also social sins that are going on there, the neglect of the poor. And we'll get to that here in a moment. The text shows us, though, who Abraham is. We see that in the first part of the text. God was reflecting on that. And then it shows us something about God as Abraham goes to God and says, are you this way or are you this way? I believe you're this way. And then we see this all in the context of a very urgent need taking place. So I want us to do this. I want us to answer three questions about prayer this morning with this text. Who am I? Who is God? What's at stake? So first one, who am I? This question and the answer to this question, if you are a Christian, should drive your prayer, should help drive you into the prayer closet. It should help drive you to your knees. It should help drive you towards prayer. Who am I? Notice this whole account of Abraham's pleading starts with the Lord saying, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? He's treating him like a friend, right? There are some things you tell friends and some things you only tell friends. And he's basically saying, Abraham's my friend. He's treating him like a friend. He's my friend. Should I tell him? You know, should I, should I tell Susie this? Should I tell John that? Should I tell Joe this? Why are you wrestling with that? Because he's your friend, right? Should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? He's treating him like a friend. And then God states that the reason for sharing this, the, re- the reason for this is rooted in Abraham's relationship, his friendship with God, his identity as a chosen one, right? being chosen of God. He says he will be a, Abraham, he says, maybe I should tell him he'll be a great and mighty nation. That's Israel that comes along later, right? He'll be a great and mighty nation. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That every nation, he's not just going to be blessed, but through him other nations are going to be blessed. And then he says, he's chosen by me. You know, Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. And he says he's supposed to keep the way of the Lord, right? He, he's supposed to have a people come from him who keep my way. And he says he do, they do two things. They do what is right and they do what is just. And that's what the people of God do. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we are to be the people of righteousness and the people of justice. Now, Abraham has a unique relationship here. 
We see that's obvious. That's what God's wrestling with. What I want you to see is it comes with a unique responsibility. It's easy to miss that when we read through this text. I think God wants Abraham to pray for. I think Abraham has a responsibility to pray for them. Why? All the nations of the earth should be blessed through him. Even Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, Abraham is the one person on the planet. There's nobody else but him that will plead for their blessing before God. Nobody else is praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody else wants them dead. They're wicked people. Not just for their sexually immoral acts. We're going to see in a moment. They hate the poor. They mistreat people. There's horrible things going on in that city. There's one man on the face of the planet that might pray for him, and it's the one that God has chosen to mediate his blessings through. It's Abraham, who he said, all the nations of the earth should be blessed through you. How's Abraham going to handle that responsibility? He handles it. He does what he's supposed to do. You know, sometimes unique relationships create unique responsibilities. I love being a daddy. I just love it. It's the great, if you're, if you're a mom, if you're a dad, you love it more than likely. You know, I know there's maybe ages when maybe you don't love it as much, you know, from what I hear. Uh, it gets a little more stressful. But at this age, mine are three in one, and I love being a daddy. And it's a unique relationship. I have a relationship with my children that you don't have because I'm their daddy, right? And so, and I'm, their, I, I'm the only one that's their daddy. And you have that relationship with your children, just like you have a unique relationship with your spouse that no one else has. Unique relationships. But my unique relationship as daddy to Canon and Eden comes with a unique responsibility as daddy. God holds me in account for providing for them. The Bible says if I don't provide for them, I'm worse than an unbeliever. God holds me to a unique responsibility as the teacher and an instructor that makes sure that they have God's truth placed in front of them. He doesn't hold me account for saving them because I can't do it, but he does hold me account for presenting them with God's truth. Instruct, he holds me account for disciplining them, trying to make sure they turn out to be decent human beings, right? Not crazy people. He wants, me to, he wants me to instruct them. He wants me to discipline them. He wants me to pour into them. He wants me to invest in them. I've got a unique relationship, but it comes with unique responsibility. Abraham here has a unique relationship with God, but it comes with a unique responsibility before God and before the world. And in the New Testament, this is what it said of the church. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own, for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. The idea is that we are the people of God and that as God's people, we know God, we talk to God, we represent God on earth as his image bearers, whom the image of God is being restored in as we become more and more to the image of Christ Jesus. And now we have the unique responsibility birthed out of that relationship. We have this unique responsibility to do these things, to represent him, to pray, to intercede for others, to share our faith, to be the people of God. Believer, you have a unique relationship with God that other people on this planet do not have. God don't have two churches. He's got one. He doesn't have another people. There's nobody else on the planet that has your responsibility before God. You, the church, has that responsibility. We, as a corporate body, have that responsibility. You, as a Christian, have a responsibility before God. Your non-Christian friends do not have before God. We have a unique relationship with a unique responsibility. 
And as the chosen people of God, he says, we're to walk. And what did he tell Abraham? They're to do righteousness and do justice. In other words, our behavior and what we stand for and what we say and how we act and how we treat people, those things should reflect well on our God who is righteous and our God who is just. Because we're God's people. Well, let me say this. Because there's a lot out there right now. I can't log on to Facebook, I can't go to Twitter, I can't turn on the news without seeing some political something ram down my throat. And this isn't a political statement, this is a Bible statement. This is a statement for the church. You do not belong to a political party. The Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Green Party or the Independent Party or any party that can make up under the sun did not purchase you. You have been bought with a price. And the Bible says, do not become slaves of who? Men. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be God's people. We're supposed to speak truth to power. We're supposed to stand up for the unborn, for the oppressed, and the sexually abused, and all those things. And God help us, if the church don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. John the Baptist spoke truth to power. Jesus Christ spoke truth to power. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to stand up and speak truth to power. God help us if we trade our responsibility as the people of God to be a mouthpiece for either political party. God help us. In the words of the late, great Dr. Adrian Rogers, the church's position is to be able to look at both political parties or any political party and say, repent. And let me tell you, there's enough sin to go on around for us to be able to look at any of them and say, repent. And to point them to where grace and mercy can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our position. Political stuff aside, you've got to make those decisions. You've got to pray about those decisions. But you be God's people. Now, you have a role in the world that no one else can play. And God has a purpose for his church that no one else can play or will play. And this is what I know. Wherever you work, what, wherever your neighborhood you live in, Wherever you shop for groceries, where, wherever you go get your hair cut, wherever you do life, God's at work. I know, I know that. Because you're there. You're there. God's people are there. And God's spirit is in you. And so as God's child, wherever you are, God's at work. Because God's at work in you. And God's at work through you. Because you have this unique responsibility. Say, is God at work in our nation? Absolutely God's at work in our nation. I don't know. Because we're here. Is God at work at North Park? Sure, you're here. Is God at work in Baldwin Park? Sure, the church is here. Wherever the church is at, God is at work. And we have a responsibility to be the people of God. That is our identity, who we are. And that's supposed to drive us. You know what that's supposed to drive us to? You had to live a certain way, but we see with Abraham, it should drive us to pray, to stand in the gap and pray. To pray for the lost, to pray for the hurting, to pray for the broken. It should move us to action, but it should move us to prayer. Because if we're not praying for our lost friends and neighbors, nobody else is. Nobody else is. How exciting to think that God has placed people in your life for you, for you to minister to because of who you are in Christ Jesus. You think, man, I wish God would send so-and-so to do this. I wish God would put so -and somebody in so-and-so's path. He has. It's you. It's you. 
You're the person. I wonder if anybody was going to share the gospel with them. Maybe you should. Maybe I should. Maybe we should, right? We're the people, right? We need to start looking around at our neighbors and our coworkers and the people down the hall from us and the different office or the different cubicle or the, the different people that we see in the grocery store and realize that God has put us in their life. And quit looking all the time for who God's going to put in our life. And realize God's putting you in the lives of other people. Man, we're so self-centered. I do the same thing. We are the people of God. That's who we are. That should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to mission. Secondly, second question is who is God? Well, how well we know God and what we know about God should be and will be reflected in our prayer life or lack thereof. It's true. It's true. You know, the better you know someone, it changes how you talk to them. It changes how much you talk to them. It changes everything. You know, some of you think that I sound southern when I'm because you're from some far corner of the country or something. And I do talk funny. I get that. But this isn't anything. You should hear me on the phone with my dad. You should hear me on the phone with a friend from Alabama. You would need an interpreter. I sound, I'm, I'm straight up Hank Williams Jr. when I go get in that mode, right? I mean, it's just, why is that, right? The guard comes down. You slip into different hats. You just start, I mean, it just, things change, right? It's the same way. You, you, you talk to your spouse differently than you talk to other ladies or other men in your office or whatever, should. You talk to your kids different. You talk to other people's kids, right? The relationship changes the conversation. And when we know God and we understand who God is and we understand what God's doing and we get God's character and we understand God's heart a little bit, that changes how we talk to God. It changes if we want to talk to God and how often we talk to God, the, it changes the relationship. It, the relationship, excuse me, changes the conversation. Now, who God is is never an excuse to not pray, but it's always an invitation to pray. Some people think they've understood some things about God's character. They've understood some things about God. Well, since, they'll say something like this. Well, since God knows everything, and since God's going to do whatever he wants to do, then why pray at all? Well, you don't understand God. Because, see, God's word has told us that he... First of all, he wants us to pray. That's enough. Number two, that he works through prayer and that he answers prayer. And so what we understand about God and even how big God is and how sovereign God is, that shouldn't drive us away from prayer. It should drive us to prayer. Just like what we understand about humanity doesn't make us give up on humanity. It should make us pray for humanity when we really understand what's going on. Now, here's what we learn in this passage about God. First thing we learn is that God is holy. Verses 20 and 21, the outcry against the city is great and their sin is very grave. And God said he's going to go down and see what's going on. He, something has offended God. And it's not that God doesn't really know what's going on, right? It's speaking into us in a language for us to kind of, it wants us to see the grave situation. It wants us to understand that first of all, that God is just. And that just because somebody has cried out against somebody else doesn't mean that God's just going to be, you know, some unjust judge. He's going to know what really happened. Right? And so God's checking up on the situation here is kind of the picture it wants us to see. But it wants us to see that if there's sin going on, God knows about it and God cares because God is holy. Sin offends God. It gets his attention. He doesn't shrug at it. He doesn't excuse it. He forgives it, but at great cost to himself. Great cost to himself. See, the sin that Sodom and Gomorrah are infamous for, as I mentioned earlier, is sexual immorality, homosexual acts, and all sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage, but 
between one man and one woman is still sin today just like it was then. However, that's not the only sin that's going on here. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. You mean it was more than the, those sexual acts? You, you, you mean when I, when I think about uh, the context of my culture, and I see all the sexual immorality, and I think we're getting like Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, that's not the only reason. The consumeristic nature of our culture is a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. The fact that we care more about our ease than we do about the poor and the hurting says a lot about our culture. God is holy. And there was more than one sin that he could pick on with Sodom and Gomorrah. There's more than one sin that he could point out in our lives as well. Both their immoral acts and their social sins against their fellow man, the poor, had deeply offended God because he's holy. So we learn that as we look at this passage. But we also learn, and the big one is, God is just. Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing. Abraham's praying and he's saying, surely you're not going to go sweet. I mean, you're going to go judge it. He's assuming we're kind of getting a picture of some things that, uh, that God must have shared with him that we don't clearly see. But he's assuming that God's about to go destroy this city. So he says, surely you're not going to throw the righteous out with the wicked. Surely you're not going to burn them both up here. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with, death with the wicked, so the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's pressing God because he knows God is just. It was the justice of God that had motivated God to action, not just his holiness. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah had not been behaving justly towards the poor. Their behavior was full of sin sexually and socially, as we mentioned. And a just God must punish sin. Because God's not just holy. He's not just offended by sin. He's just, so he must punish sin. But Abraham knows something else. God's justice means he treats the wicked and the righteous differently. Right? Because he's just. So if one's righteous and one's wicked, God doesn't treat the righteous like the wicked. That's not how it works, right? Notice Abraham didn't ask God to lower his standards. He didn't go before God and say, God, I know you're a just God, but... No, no, no. He's not asking God to lower his standards. He didn't excuse the sin of the wicked. The people of God do no, no one any favors when we belittle and make light of what a just and holy God calls wicked. Abraham doesn't do that. He understands God is just. Now, so here's the tension. God is holy, God is just, but then we see God is merciful and gracious. Verse 24 says, Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? He's asking a question. Let's say there's some righteous people there. Is there a chance you would save that whole wicked place because of 50 righteous? Okay, let's say there's 300,000 just wicked people there. But let's say there's 50 righteous people. Could the 300,000 wicked be saved because of the 50 righteous? That's the question. Could somehow, I mean, could somehow that righteousness be applied to the community's account? In verse 26, how will God answer that? I will spare the whole place for their sake. He says if there is, he gets all the way down to 10. If there's just 10 righteous people in this wicked place, he will spare the whole place, not just the ten righteous. He's going to spare all of Sodom and all of Gomorrah if there's just ten there. That's grace. 
That's mercy because he's going to spare the wicked because of the righteous. God is saying, for the sake of the righteous, I will spare everyone, even the ones that do deserve death. God was offering mercy to people who did not deserve mercy. He was offering grace to people who do not deserve grace. It's easy to notice God's justice when we read this passage and you read the following account of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah when ultimately it was destroyed because there were not ten righteous there. But don't miss His grace. Don't miss His mercy. And do not miss the gospel thread in this narrative. Do not miss the gospel implications. Abraham is asking God if he had saved the wicked due to the righteousness of someone else. Could one group be saved because of the righteousness of another? Abraham goes all the way down to 10 and stops. Now, we don't know why. You ever wonder that? Like, well, he got it 10 and just stopped. Why not? Because you know what he's wanting to ask. He's wanting to ask, well, if there's just one. And some people say it's because he understands that what has happened here is that God, there, a fact has been established that God's not going to throw away the wicked with the righteous with the wicked, that he makes a difference between the two. That's a possibility. One person actually said, maybe it's that Abraham has understood something. And that's that there's not one that's truly righteous there anyway. There's only Lot, who the Bible calls righteous, but as one person said, he's relatively righteous. He's got plenty of faults in his life. And so he knows not to even ask that. I don't know. We don't really know why. Ultimately, though, the city is destroyed because there's not ten righteous people there. But God spares Lot and his two daughters. He would have spared his wife, but she longingly looks back and disobediently looks back at Sodom when God had said not to, because her heart was still there. And she turns to a pillar of salt. You know the story. His sons-in-laws, they're destroyed. It's him and his two children. Somebody said, if Lot could have just led seven other people to the Lord, if he, if he, if he could have just led his neighbors to the Lord, a whole city could have been saved. But don't miss this. As Tim Keller has pointed out, this passage points us to that key gospel truth that God will save the wicked due to the righteousness of someone else. There was no one in Sodom and Gomorrah with that kind of righteousness. There were not even ten righteous. And as I said, Lot only had relative righteousness. But one came through Abraham. Abraham wasn't righteous enough. But one came through Abraham, one of his descendants, the Messiah, the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He came, and the Bible teaches us that through, the, through his righteousness, through the righteous one, through the righteous branch, through the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, all who believe can be saved. Every wicked person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus can be saved. And not only have their sin forgiven, but have Jesus' righteousness credited to their account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. One of my favorite verses, if not my favorite verse in all the Bible. For our sake, he made, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So at the cross, God treats Jesus like he is a sinner, as it's been said, so that when you believe on him, he treats you like you're not a sinner, even though you are. He treats Jesus like a sinner, even though he's not. He treats you like you're not a sinner, even though you are. And he takes and all your sins placed on Jesus, and Jesus was judged for that sin. And when you believe on him, all of his righteousness, the sinless life he lived, all of his righteousness is clothed on you. And when God looks at you, he don't see all that stuff you did. When God looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. This narrative is pointing us towards that, that that's something that's coming down the storyline. God is a gracious and merciful God. 
let these truths about God, His holiness, His justice, His grace, His mercy, should drive us deeper into prayer. Not excuses not to pray, invitations to pray. They're invitations to us to take our needs before God, to take people before God, to take situations and circumstances before God. Abraham is coming to God knowing God is just and knowing he's experienced his mercy. And Christian, you know God is just and you know you've experienced his grace and his mercy. And let the truth of who God is and what God has done for you in Jesus Christ drive you to prayer and drive you to live missionally. Because it's only through Jesus that we can draw near in the first place. It's only through him that we're reconciled to God. And when Jesus, the great high priest, who makes intercession for us, when he gets a hold of our hearts and he changes us into children of God, he makes us into intercessors for others. Now what's at stake? Who am I? Who is God? Number three, what's at stake? Abraham is concerned that the righteous not get swept away with the wicked. He's concerned about that. Do you catch that? He's probably concerned about Lot, his nephew, a very real nephew, a very real person, a very real family that's about to be destroyed. He's afraid. He prays about God's character. He prays for the righteousness. He prays for the, excuse me, the righteous people who are in the city. And he prays, though, also for the whole city, even the wicked people. All those things are at work here. And so the first thing it seems he's concerned about, the first thing at stake is he wants God to be seen for who God really is, the character and reputation of God. You're the just judge of all the world. You're not going to destroy the, the righteous with the wicked, are you? Abraham knew God to be just, and he wanted God to be seen as such. His prayer in connection to God's character shows a heart for God to be seen for who God is, for the character of God to ring true for all the world to see and understand. See, Jesus said we're to pray it this way. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. The hallowing of God's name. That doesn't mean we're saying, God, you're holy. That means, God, I pray that you would be treated as holy. I pray that you'd be treated as holy. Because you are holy. I pray that in my life, you'd be treat, your name would be treated that way. In my city, in my family, in my nation, in this world, that you, your name would be hallowed because your name is hallowed. Our first concern as God's people is God and His great name on the earth. He is holy, just, and gracious, and merciful. All those things and more. And that's never changed. And in relation to the church and to my life, how do people perceive God? That should be a concern for me. And that should be a concern in my prayer life. That is at stake when, when I live my life. That's at stake. What do people think about when they think of my God? When they see me. They see the way I talk or the way I act or the way I believe. So in my prayers, hallowed be your name. God, you're gracious, you're just, you're merciful. Let it be shown as such in my life. But he also wanted very real people to be rescued. Notice Sodom and Gomorrah are wicked and immoral and deserving of God's swift wrath. And God is holy and just and must punish wickedness. It's that tension in the Bible that's only resolved in Jesus. What's at stake here, though, is very real places with very real people about to completely be destroyed. People are going to die. And he gets it. And there are people that you and I know who are going to go, barring the miracle of salvation, to a very real hell. The reality of our neighbor and their needs, our needs, their needs, this should drive us to prayer. Prayer is not just important, prayer is urgent. 
Prayer is urgent. We can enter into eternity like that. It's all over. We want people to be rescued. And the other thing at stake here is, will we be who God chose us to be? Would Abraham be who God has chosen him to be? Would, would Abraham function as that blessing to the nations that he was supposed to? Will we allow our unique relationship to fuel us to do our unique responsibility? It's about more than prayer. It's about how we live, living for God's glory, serving others, loving others, sharing with others. This should be the reality of our days, and it should be carried into our prayer time. We are the people of God, made righteous by Christ, made intercessors by the great intercessor. Will we be who we are? Will we behave? Will we live out who we are in position in Christ Jesus? See, prayer is not just important. It is important. We say, oh, it's, it's urgent. It's, it's, it's a necessity. We want God to be seen who's who God really is. We want people to be rescued. And we want to be who we're supposed to be. So, what do we do? Well, we pray. We pray. And here's how we pray. Here's, here's the takeaway. Here's the response to all that. Meditating on those questions. Who I am? Who is God? What's at stake? We pray with humility. Abraham says, I am dust and ashes. Oh, I'm talking to God. You hear that over and over again. Oh, I'm talking to He's kind of fearful, right? I'm talking to God, right? There's a humility there. It's not, I'm the chosen one of God. And I, you know, it's, it's, I'm dust and ashes, right? There's a humility there. He understands the gravity of what's going on and who God is. And the more you understand who God is, the more humble you become because you see yourself not compared to your neighbor, but compared to God. God's not interested in comparing you to your neighbor. Abraham doesn't go before God going, hey, Sodom's a horrible place, but I'm a pretty good guy compared to Sodom. No, I'm dust and ashes. He's not comparing himself to Sodom. He's comparing himself to God. Humility. We pray humbly, understanding who we are in Christ, yes, but who we are without him. There's a humility before God. Pray with humility. And prayer is a tangible sign of humility. Pray with boldness. He's bold. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. He's bold. He knows he's being bold when he says that. And we have a relationship with God through Christ. We have experienced the grace of God in Christ, and we don't have to just go humbly. We can and we should go boldly, confidently, before the throne of grace, the Bible says. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence or with boldness, is the word, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That word confidence, it means courage or boldness. We have no need to fear God's wrath, for our high priest has satisfied it. We have no need to fear condemnation, for in Christ there is none. So we can boldly and confidently go before God. And that means we can go and we can ask God for big things and pray big prayers, mighty prayers. I think our prayers are too small. Pray big things. We have a good father. We like to sing that song, right? We have a good, good father who loves to do good things for his children. And it couldn't be that many times our prayers are just too small. Go boldly before God. You are his child bought by the blood of Jesus. Take your needs before him. Take other people before him. And pray with persistence. Abraham says, 50 people? How about 45? 40? How about 30? 20? How about 10, right? He's persistent, persistent. You're like, is he getting on God's nerves yet? Nope. He's doing exactly what God wants him to do. Jesus said it this way, ask, seek, knock. Jesus told a couple of different parables of people who were, they were honored because of their persistence. And he's inviting us. God invites us to be persistent in our praying. 
But how easily we give up. We grow lazy. We get distracted. We're undisciplined. Easily discouraged many times to not persistently pray. But God has much to teach us in our persistence. And he doesn't always give you the answer you want right away. Sometimes he wants you to pray for a long time about it. Because he's not just, he could do it like that, but he's working in you. And he's working in them, and he's working in the situation. Be persistent in your prayer. Pray on mission. Humility, boldness, persistence. Pray on mission. Abraham prayed for lost cities that he did not really know much about. I mean, he had some connection with them. He had, remember, he saved the king of Sodom, helped him out, saved Lot, all that story that happened a few chapters before this. But outside of that family, he didn't have a lot of connection there. He's praying for them, pleading with them. Some would even say risking himself before God here, putting himself on the line a little bit here. Are we praying for lost people to be saved? Specific people. Not just God saved the lost, but John Doe that you work with, that you live next door to. If we're not praying for them to be saved, who is? Who is? Well, maybe somebody else is. Maybe they're not. Maybe you're the person. Pray on mission. Pray with trust. Abraham finally stopped at 10 and he walked away. What's going on there? He's just entrust, he's entrusted the situation to God. He knows God knows better than he has and it's in God's hands. And it's just a picture of faith. It's a picture of trust that God's going to do what's best. And so we pray trusting God. We pray committing things to God. We pray understanding that ultimately everything's in his hands. We pray with faith. So that's our response to these questions of, yeah, we know who God is. Yeah, we know who we are. Yeah, we know what's at stake. So we pray humbly. We pray boldly. We pray persistently. We pray on mission. And we pray in faith. We pray trustingly. But we pray. We pray. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know that God offers you friendship in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that we're all a lot more like Sodom and like Gomorrah than we care to admit. We are full of our own sin and wickedness. And the only one, Jesus, the only one who is truly righteous, has stood in the gap for you. So you can be spared because of his righteousness. He bore your sin, and by faith you can have your sins taken away and his righteousness credited to your account because of his death and his resurrection. Do you know Jesus? Are you a friend of God? The only way is through Jesus. Only way is through Jesus. Believer, church, I want to urge us today in light of who we are in light of who we know God to be and what he's done in Christ in light of all that's at stake in our lives and in the lives of others to humbly, boldly persistently, missionally and by faith pray pray, pray I believe the greatest works of God in the history of the world have always been accompanied by prayer. And I don't believe God moves mightily where we don't pray. He has just chosen to operate in that way. He doesn't have to, but he's chosen to. Will you pray? Will you pray for the people in your workplace? Will you pray for your church? Will you pray for your family? Will you pray for your neighbors? Will you pray? Would you ask God to give you boldness to live on mission? Will you, will you pray? Will you allow who you are in Christ and who God is to move you towards prayer? Will you pray for our nation? Will you pray for all that's going on in our world? Will Will we be people of prayer? If we're not the house of prayer as the people of God, there's no house of prayer. We're it. We're the intercessors. It's on us. There's no plan B. We're it. Let's pray.